In the fall of last year, 2012, ECW Press released the book Too Much Trouble, a very oral history of Danko Jones, written by Stuart Berman. Over 70 participants, everyone from Lemmy to Jella Biafra, Mike Watt, John Garcia, Eddie Spaghetti, Damian Abraham, Blaine Cartwright, Bruce LaBruce, Donald Tardy, David Vincent, Don Jameson and Jim Florentine, Peaches, Brent Hines, Michael Ackerfeld, Dallas Green, and dozens and dozens more are documented telling the story of our band within its pages. Episode number 30 of this podcast commemorates the night of the book's release, where author Stuart Berman, JC, and myself held a discussion with CBC Music's Vish Khanna moderating. As much as this was a memorable night, I thought it would be best to bring Stuart back onto the podcast for a one-on-one sit-down discussion on how this book came to be, anecdotes Stuart acquired during the making of, and our past history together. Of course, this talk of ours inevitably branched out into other tangents, and many digressions were made. Whether you've read the book yet or are thinking about picking it up, which I highly suggest you do, this episode pries into our band shedding some behind-the-scenes POVs, which I hope you enjoy. I should note the outro music for this episode is Stewart's band, The Two Koreas, just in case you're left wondering at the end. Also, this podcast wouldn't happen if it wasn't for our great sponsors, Blue Mic Microphones and their Yeti Mics, and Skull Candy Headphones. I don't go anywhere without the Aviators or the Mixmaster Mic Headphones. And it uh, it should be noted. Well, I well actually I should I should I should have noted that um, during last podcast with Chris Jericho and Damien Abraham, we used the Yeti Blue mics. We made a mention of them, but failed to say that it was truly indeed the Yeti Blue mics that I carted around with me all over Australia procuring podcast after podcast during the Soundwave Festival. So every Australian podcast that you'll hear in the next few months were done with these Yeti Blue Mics. Uh, And it also should be noted that every time I took the Yeti Blue Mics out of the box, um, it, it impressed every guest. I actually gained immediate legitimacy in each guest's eyes once I took out the Yeti Blue Mics. I can't really tell you who it was because I don't want it to I don't want to ruin the surprise of future podcasts. So uh just to let you know that uh all the Australian podcasts were done with the Yeti Blue Mics. Okay, here we go. I'm talking about our book, Too Much Trouble, yet again. This time with the author, Stuart Berman is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. All right, so um, I have here Stuart Berman, the author of a book about us. Too Much Trouble is the name of the book. Stuart Berman is the author. And we did a podcast earlier with Vish Khanna from the CBC. Um, But I thought it would be best to just do a one-on-one, you and I, and talk about this book and and give people 
a real insight as to how it came about, um, your relationship, our relationship, and uh, just various particulars about making this book happen for anyone who might not even be into the band. Just just the whole um, routine of, of, not routine, but whole process of, of going through making a book like this, which is an oral history on our band. Um, welcome to the podcast, Stuart Berman. Thank you. I feel uh, very honored to finally get a, a a real podcast as opposed to the you know live club podcast, which was nice and all, but you know this feels a little more special. Um, I've known you for years. Yes. Um, whether people know it or not, and it's you came up to me, I think at Lee's Palace or something, and you knew of the radio show I did, or how was that? Yeah, I uh, I grew up in North York, uh, which was, you know, within close proximity to the uh, York University campus where, where you attended school. Yeah. And uh, York had a radio station called CHRY, or still does, actually. Um, and I would uh, listen to radio at night going to bed. Instead of watching TV, I would uh, sit by my radio with a remote control and sort of flip through the channels and... Uh, I stumbled across your show, The Seminal Load, on Sunday nights, and it really introduced me to a lot of great bands, uh, a lot of bands that even factor into the book, uh, like The Makeup and Caius. So it... Uh, Can we talk about another r- way we got to know each other, which is personal? <laughs> <laughs> what, it wasn't just our love of music? no. We liked the same girl. At different points in history. At different points. But when we, we met, I think it wasn't at first, but I eventually put two and two together and I said, oh, this guy likes her too. And uh, I, it's all hazy now. But I, I, it's not that I didn't like you because I didn't know who you were. Like, I didn't know you. Uh, but I just, um, when, I, when, I, when I would think of you, I'd think of her and I'd just... What's going on here? Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, so that was an interesting thing. And then I think as the years went on and we got to know each other better and we became friends, um, uh, this the girl that we both liked, um, you know, was an afterthought. Really, we we became friends. Yeah. We, you know, and and I think I think we bonded over the fact that we both got nowhere with her. We both got nowhere, <laughs> and yes. I think that was what made us even. You know. Yeah. Closer friends, we were just like, hey. Yeah. I think it was like a moment where we both threw up our hands and said, hey. Well, I was like, well, if Danko Jones can't get anywhere with this girl, then, you know, I'm in good company. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm Danko Donovan. <laughs> and that I, was, you know, and that was right when you were coming out onto the scene. You were, you were the <laughs> hip, cool kid in town at that point. You can even capitalize on that and parlay that into some uh, fun. <laughs> If I'm zoned in on one person, and I was zoned in on this one girl for uh, quite a while, um, maybe because nothing was happening, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, you know, I got a yes, and then I got a no, and then I got a yes, and then I got a no, and you had something very similar happen, right? Well, we, we actually became very close friends, so that sort of complicated you know, matters as well. It was, you know... Dawson's Creek was on TV around that time, and it, there was very much a Dawson Joey uh, back and forth going on there. 
So what would that make me in the Dawson's Creek cast? Well, you're Pacey, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bright, charismatic, second banana. Right. Um, and that's probably why we became friends. And this third third party, this other girl, became the well was was the thorn that started it all. I can see a pattern though when you're talking about you know obsessing over that which you cannot have. You know, in this book, Canada is sort of the girl mm-hmm. that you can't have. And uh, even though you have, you know, been very successful in many other countries, there's something about that country close to home that you can't, uh, that won't accept you. Is that, is that, you know, my uh, it's psychology a, it's a very, very accurate observation. And that is why you are the writer. And I, I'm I see the big picture. The, yeah. I'm the lowly reader reading this as yeah. you send it to me. Although, Hey, you know, I put two years of my life into this book and I, I just get a podcast in return. So. <laughs> When you wrote the Broken Social Scene book, this book is broken. Uh, you know, there's a few few of the guys, especially Brendan Canning, um, very close with. Uh, I lived with. We're, we're buddies. Um, but I looked at their band, which was started after our band, uh, and I thought, well, a lot of the people in the book are regional, like local Toronto scenesters. Uh, I think th- there was only a couple. Uh, Jay Mask is being a notable, you know, uh, out of towner in the book, uh, and, uh, and in the a, broken social scene. In the broken social scenes book, a, a name, if you will. Yeah, we got Scott Camberg from Pavement, and oh, okay. some of the guys from Block Party are in there as well. Okay. So there's. I've yeah. just I've just revealed <laughs> to everyone that I'm I've never been the biggest Pavement fan. Right. I've all my friends for years have tried to get me on the slanted enchanted. Uh, bandwagon and I never never could understand I tried trust me man I'd sit there with that album and listen to it trying to decode what everybody could hear that I couldn't and I just I never got on it see it's funny because when I think of pavement my first exposure to them was through CHRY so might not have been through your show but I sort of associated with oh trust me there's and (laughs) when I say friends a lot of those friends were at CHRY who were trying to get me on that train no that just right. didn't work. It's funny you bring up Broken Social Thing because one of my first memories of talking to you is with Kevin Drew at the Cameron House. You and Brendan Canning had your DJ night there. I think it was, or maybe it was just one DJ night there. Oh, really? I think yeah. Wednesday nights, uh, Melanie Kay used to book sort of quote-unquote industry folk. Oh, she DJ did? Okay. Musicians. I, I, at that time, also qualified as industry folk, so okay. I was hanging out at the Cameron House a lot. Uh and I remember having a conversation with you and Kevin Drew, who I just met on the spot that night. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And it was about pornography. <laughs> okay. So when you were talking earlier about that other thing we had in common, I thought you were oh, talking about pornography. Our favorite. Uh, Have we stars. outed Kevin as a as a? Well, a no, porno? Kevin's lyrics are all about porn and sex are they? And, and semen. So it's, it's oh okay. There's no. Uh, he even has his uncle love and porn. Oh, okay, because so. because Kevin and I would <laughs> we would sit. Oh, I used to, okay. I used to live with Brendan, and Kevin would come over all the time, and I we've we'd have many discussions about Ginger Lynn because <laughs> we both grew up with Ginger Lynn, yes. <clears throat> and we were both fans. <clears throat> so I've known Kevin to be 
kind of a big porn head. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, like at his home, he's got all those like Richard Kern books, you know, art books. Oh, those Tashin quote books? Quote, unquote, art books. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, he's he's he knows the stuff. You just take a porno mag, put hard bound it, you know, put a hard cover to it and, and uh, call it art. Passion. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, speaking of Richard Kern, Dentata, which is a local Toronto band, they have a video called Earwig, which was directed by Richard Kern. Yeah, it's funny to see Richard Kern's whole sort of renaissance now. As the, is it? A, it's there's like, a renaissance going on? Well, I love Vice it, Magazine man. is all over oh. him, and you know they shoot films with well, him. I and, love Richard Kern's stuff. And I think he did a bang-up job for that Dentata song and video and that band. And that's how I found out about the band is because I saw the video and I – Realize they're from Toronto. I'm like, well, why haven't I heard about these guys? And they opened for us the last time we played Toronto. Well, it's an interesting th- thing now. It's like, you know, back when you were starting out, the scene was very easy to comprehend in a way. You could it identify was. it a lot more easily. Yeah. And I think this is true in any city. Like, I think the idea of a local music scene is sort of almost antiquated right now because the internet just has exploded the, yeah. you know, opportunities for access. So, you know... I'll hear about a band from Toronto that I've never heard of, has no connection to any yeah. kind of identifiable scene, but through SoundCloud, they've managed to, you know, get signed to a big label in the UK. So you don't see that kind of. How does that make you mo- feel as, as like a kind of a local music pundit, you know? Well, it's changed my sort of focus. Have you a felt bit. you've lost control? Yeah. I don't know if we ever had control per se, but it was just, I think, yeah, it, it used to be a lot easier to identify movements. At least and, control in terms of like mapping out stuff and, and knowing. Yeah, what just getting the lay of the land. Now there's just so much music all the time that you don't even know where it's coming from exactly. And I'm sometimes, overwhelmed. Sometimes you don't find out until much later. It's like, oh, they're from Toronto. Crazy. <clears throat> right. I've never, I've never heard of them before. I've never seen their name on shows because a lot of music these days doesn't even require you to perform in front of a live audience due to uh, technology. So it's uh, it's an interesting time. It's uh, on the other hand, it, it, it sort of constantly motivates you to keep discovering stuff. Cause you never know what you're going to find. I think it's becoming harder to become a true authority on things. It's we're sort of living in an age of generalists and, you know, you can sort of try to keep tabs on a lot of things or you can, just devote yourself to one specific Specialize, niche. yeah. Yeah. Which is what I find a lot of people are doing as well. Yeah, and there's always value in niches. Like, there'll always be, like, an underground noise scene. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I feel like that's where we are as a rock band who's who've taken on or who are influenced by bands who, you know, past bands that were, you know, very, very, very popular arena bands almost. Um and they've influenced our sound, and yet, like you said, inundated by the amount of music, uh, we could never reach that level, I don't think. But happy to be part of like a niche kind of kind of place um, that you know will appeal to people who like this. You know? Well, well, that's been the interesting thing about the last couple of years is rock, classic rock music is now just a niche among many, as opposed to yeah, you know the dominant art form that it was when we were kids. Which I find, I find interesting. I find disheartening. Um, but at the same time, uh, you just got to roll with the punches. Uh, just keep doing it. We're lucky 
as a band to have started before all this happened, before Bandcamp and SoundCloud and iTunes. So we're, we have a history behind us and we have a, um, a base of, of people who followed us through the years. And, you know, we're a name enough to, to, to keep it going where pe- people can recognize it. Um, but getting back to uh, when you wrote the Broken Social Scene book, I remember reading it and just, and you actually approached me and I'm in the book. You approached me for some quotes, a few you didn't use because. <laughs> I <laughs> Anyways, should, I should say that I uh, I interviewed Danko at a coffee shop, or sorry, it's Pusateri's in, in Yorkville. Yeah, we don't, we don't screw around with mere coffee no. shops. We go we go to the finest gourmet and, food store. In case you know, and I, I got a lot of material from that interview because in case you haven't noticed, Danko likes to talk and he's got a lot of great stories. Uh, but then the next day he sent me about like, I don't know, like a 2000 word email of additional material. Oh, I did. I remember. <laughs> Which was a little more, uh, pointed and, and brazen than, than the conversation that we had. So, uh, well, you know, some of it was used, some of it was hey, not Broken used. social scene, if nobody knows, is, is more of a collective and they yes. kind of spawned this kind of new way of being a band, really, I think. Uh, maybe a couple other bands are like this. Godspeed, they're all from Canada. Arcade, yeah. Fire, are like this. But these loose collective. But Broken is more of a loose collective where members are in and out, and there's only a core of what three or four guys who have been there since day one. Two guys have been there since day one. There's another guy who's been there since day two. <clears throat> and so over the years, we've crossed paths with various members, and I've had. Good experiences, like Brendan Canning, and bad experiences, like a couple other people who are not Brendan Canning. And I think those were the emails I sent you about those people. Which, you know, I I had to keep things on point. And that's the thing with doing these oral histories is, you know, the challenge is creating a through line between all the different people's quotes yes. and making sure it flows like a movie script. In a way. I did not so, know the process at the time. So there was a lot of tangents that have to be sort of shaved off in order yes. to keep the show on the road. But one thing that I was left with after I, I, I saw the book and I read it and stuff, I said, well, our history is longer. Our timeline's longer. We've at the point when broken social, this book is broken came out. Broken had already, you know, done the, you know, achieved, um, certain levels of success and popularity and appearances on Letterman, et cetera, et cetera. They, they made many inroads, but I still felt, even though we'd never been on Letterman or anything, our history is rich enough to document and read back. And, uh, I I approached you for it and you were very surprisingly (laughs) hesitant to, to take up the project. Well, the thing with Broken Social Scene is there was a very obvious narrative arc that presents itself. Because even though the band formed in 2000, uh, this history dates back several years before to when these relationships were formed. And a lot of the people in the band were also in other groups throughout the 1990s that were coming up in the sort of post-Nirvana age where any band with a flannel shirt was getting a record contract yeah. in Canada as yep. well, especially. So 
these are people who had tried to play the game as it were and 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 got rejected and found themselves at the end of the 90s with no record contract, no label, no career in some cases and then they sort of mobilized and formed this sort of super group and that and did it completely on an independent level and their timing was really uncanny because it was also just at that moment where the internet was all of a sudden changing the way people first heard music and you know bands without major label support could all of a sudden get a lot of exposure in the US which was very hard to do in the uh, 90s as you can attest as well so you know there was a real sort of underdog sort of rising up against the man kind of story with broken social scene and with that you could also tie in a lot of narratives about the way the industry was changing and they were sort of emblematic of how the internet can really push your band forward with you guys you know i i just saw the story you know i saw you guys just from you know, you know taking the broad view that you guys have been doing what you've been doing for 15 years and you you know master your, your sort of core fans and you know, it from the outside it didn't look like the most dramatic narrative. So it wasn't until I actually, you know, went back and thought about everything you'd actually been through, and you've had all these weird little turns in your career, sort of this weird little zigzaggy road. You know, from the from the long view, it just looks like you've been on a straight line. But when you actually do a close up, you can see that yeah, there was a lot of weird twists and turns along the way, and that sort of formed this really unique narrative. So yeah, I had to, you know take a little time and research your story more because, you know, I knew I was pretty up on your history up until say 2002. And then you guys start spending a lot more time elsewhere. So, yeah, you know, and you would give me the updates, but I didn't actually see the full scope of, you know, what you'd accomplished until. And I thought that your, um, you know, your original hesitation <clears throat> fell in line with, the feeling that I was getting from the rise of broken social scene from a lot of other people, whether it was people in the industry or, or just like the general populace that this is what's cool. Now broken social scene is what's cool. You guys are not cool to break it down into a high school level. And I felt, well, we know all those guys, those guys, a lot of those guys are friends and um, whether I lived with Brandon Canning or not, you know, we're, we're friends. A lot of, yeah, I'm friends with Kevin Drew. Um, I'd like to say now that I'm friends with Charles. Uh, and I think <laughs> we nice. did make up. Um, but then since then, of course, it's a yin yang thing. And I don't know how I left it off with another member of broken <laughs> social scene the last time I saw him. But anyways, um, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, that's how we felt, which is what's reflected in the book, obviously, that we got this. I don't care if people don't like our band and don't support our band, but this it was more than that. It was a full rejection of like who we are as who we were as people. Like we were just this lowbrow coffee time type band. And on stage uh, during like the banter that I have a tendency to go off on, I've played it up and I've almost embraced it. There was a there was a period of the band when I really felt this rejection from like the indie rock world, which is where we're really from, to be honest. I, I embraced the rejection and I said, you think we're this lowbrow, knuckle dragging, coffee time type band? Okay, we are. Yeah. 
and uh, your original hesitation temporarily confirmed <laughs> what I had been feeling. And so I just went back and I said, okay, fine, you know, that's okay. Uh, I think, well, we we could really do this this book, but I approached you first and only you because I felt much like you have with Broken Social Scene, you have these ties with everyone that are, you know, you're, you, you know all the guys in the band and everyone's really cool with you you have this rich history of just being in the scene, watching everything develop from its embryonic stage to Letterman, <laughs> and and you know you uh, it, it you could you could read it in the Broken Social Scene book, and you also have this kind of international all your writings with Pitchfork and CMJ as well. That was a long time. Long ago. time ago. Uh, but I mean, I'd I'd watch you know the Pixies, uh, loud, quiet, loud. Is that what it's called? Yep. Loud, quiet, loud. And you're the voice on the phone that Frank Black's doing an interview with. It's not mentioned. Your name isn't there, but I know you. And I'm like, that's Stuart. Stuart's- I still actually had to sign a release form for that because actually my name is on screen on the uh, at the credits. No, no, it, he's holding up like the itinerary oh. during the phone interview. And okay, I saw it a long time ago. My name is on the list so i had to uh ah. sign a clearance farm what if your name what if that shot wasn't used i i maybe you probably I would have, have still had to awesome. sign something i was kind of worried you know when they approached me about with the clearance form and i was like wait is he going to be making fun of me on the <laughs> other end of the line like right. pointing at the receiver going who is this idiot yeah <laughs> i didn't know he was shirtless during that phone interview either. <laughs> so that was that was very exciting to find it but getting back to the book. Getting uh, back to you, though, that's yeah. the reason why I asked you, and, and uh, strategically as well, because there are people in our in our lives, ex-members and other people, that don't like us very much for different reasons. and Which are all outlined in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, well, there's there two people you couldn't get who didn't want to be part of the book. But I thought you have such a great reputation uh, as being like very fair that a lot of the ex-members felt safe in your hands. Um, You know, Gavin Brown, Damon Richardson, these are guys that, you know, we we're not we're not on the best relation with, but you're you're fine with them and, and they trust you. And so I I figured that was another reason why I asked you. Yeah, and, and the more I thought about it, I realized, you know, this book would be a lot of fun to take on on a personal level. You know, it I was able to kind of go back and document a moment of my life, you know, in the, in the 90s when I was first sort of getting involved in music in Toronto and, and bands like yours and the Deadly Snakes were a big part of sort of immersing me in, in Toronto music. Um, and it's almost like a yin-yang to the broken social scene story. Um, you know, I'm a Libra, so I, I've always liked to balance my... Uh, my noise with my pop, you know, I would say my, you know, two all time favorite bands are you know, the Beatles and the Stooges and sort of my, my taste sort of, sort of branch off from those starting points. So in a way this was broken social scene was broken social scene book sort of covered, a, you know, the sort of more uh, elegant refined side of indie rock and this sort of delved into the dirtier, uglier side. And both, both of which have been, you know, very important in my life. 
And then on a sort of larger, you know, big picture scale, I think, as we were talking about earlier, this was a way to analyze the sort of uh, diminishing power of rock and roll in the sort of this in this sort of post-internet age and how, you know, the institutions that once supported new rock bands, specifically radio, have sort of ignored a lot of new rock music. Yeah. They've become very safe, very formulaic, or just play anything made before 1980. So, you know, a band like yours might not get, might not make sense for you to be written about on, say, Stereo Gum or one of these sites. But, you know, if... Q107 was doing its job properly and and still nurturing new bands. You guys would be, win the homegrown. <laughs> yeah, win the homegrown uh, Q107 Jesse homegrown. and Gene uh, <laughs> talent show competition. I remember when Forgotten in People was quietly released on arts and crafts and nobody knows this until now i took five copies to europe and i remember my dad drove me to the airport to pearson international airport and i had the copies i was going to put it in my carry-on and i forgot it in the car (laughs) and i was so hell-bent on giving people certain people in europe a copy of this amazing album from my friend, <coughs> my roommate. I wanted him, I wanted, I I called my dad. I was already in line to check in and they were already driving, my dad was already driving home. And I said, um, could you please mail me the CDs? If you can't turn around, because we're going in soon, it's too late. Could you mail it to me? He mailed me, you forgot it in people, the way my dad has a tendency, he's very anal. And he he packaged it in a way that, like, a a pit bull couldn't even bite his (laughs) way through. And it was five copies of You Forgot It in People. And I gave one, I gave a few to certain people. So a lot of people don't know that I I tried to help Broken, in my small way, way back in, I think that was originally released in 01. Uh, oh, two. Oh, oh, two. So oh, two. two was like, and I remember the where we got, I got the package in Copenhagen, Denmark. We were playing um, uh, in Copenhagen that night. Uh, so I've always been supportive of the indie rock scene. And when I felt that sting of rejection from people, I was just like, fuck, man, you guys don't know. You don't know anything about this music. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know how it got there. You know, all those dudes in Broken... When we went on tour with Motorhead and Saxon, Brendan got mad at me because I didn't bring him a Saxon T-shirt because he loves, yeah. loves Saxon. And we we bonded over our our mutual love of, of heavy metal music when we lived together. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a generational thing. I mean, just imagine kids who were getting into Black Sabbath in 1971 and you trying to tell them, you know, actually, this music comes from, you know, Cream and The Who and, you know, Muddy Waters. And, you know, kids back then might have been like, ah, who gives a shit about that stuff? I just Fair care enough. about Black Sabbath. So Fair enough. Fortunately, I think about this a lot, you know, for, for a kid getting into music now and trying to make sense of the history uh, must be such a daunting task. I mean, when we grew up, yeah. you know, there was sort of a defined canon that you had to, you know, that you could be directed to and and study 
you know, if you wanted to get into hardcore, you kind of knew which hardcore records were the cream of the crop, thanks to books and magazines and things like that. Um, or if you, yeah, if you're getting into kraut rock, you, you knew sort of which albums you had to have. And now, there, I mean, there's just so much music and so many micro genres and so many people creating music all over the world which we now have access to that it's kind of like, where do you start and how do you make sense of things and hit him, you know, how do you learn your history when you're constantly being, you know, inundated with the present? So, you know, with each generation, there's going to be a bit of a disconnect between what came before. And I really just feel that there should be an open with, with this overwhelming music scene we have now there should be with it an open-mindedness that yeah. i feel is not is not happening with the with the amount of music like kids who are into metal are not into indie rock like folk stuff and vice versa it's still you still have these like hard dividing lines and yeah. i just feel that it shouldn't really be that way i, I mean yeah i'm on the short end of this stick of course because our it's arcade fire on the cover of Time Magazine and playing with Mick Jagger and not our band. But at the same time, if it was the other way around, I'd still be championing like small indie bands. I mean, I've, I've quietly, I still, I'm not so vocal about it now. I just quietly listen to indie rock. I'm not going to tweet about this great indie rock band that I had. I'd rather tweet about a great rock band because I find that they're, they're unheard and, and, and ignored. Well, I think once upon a time, indie rock was it was a political gesture almost. Like you were saying, I'm going to try to do this my own way outside of the music industry, and I'm going to collaborate with like-minded people who are all sort of committed to the same DIY cause. Now there's no, that sort of romanticism and, and ideology are kind of gone. It's just like a bunch of bands <laughs> making music and yeah. spitting it out there. So I don't, like indie rock as a term is just becomes more and more vague with each passing year. So it's just who's good and who isn't good. It was independent of major labels. And since their voice has been kind of cut down. Yeah. That's like, what are you rebelling against? Really? I mean, there's different things to rebel against, but it's just, it seems like, it seems like major label artists and indie artists are all kind of, trying to do the same thing which is like get as many youtube hits as yeah. possible or, yeah you know and the they're all kind of competing on the same field don't get me wrong obviously there's a big difference between lady gaga and and your average indie rock band but it feels like the way we discover music is all in the same place it's all in this online viral yeah kind of like sphere. bands like walk off the earth yeah i think the book is hopefully starts you know a lot of discussions about you know the state of music and you know how band how can a band become successful in this world where you know the the old rule books sort of been scrapped and you know i think it's interesting about the danko jones story is you've developed this fan base and you've found success um in a way that almost defies you know sort of standard logic on both the mainstream level and an indie rock level um and i mentioned this in the book when you know we start getting into the section where all your peers and the bands you grew up loving sort of start professing their admiration for you and 
and that everybody got into this band a different way. It wasn't like one single or one particular album. Yeah. Everyone had this weird circumstantial route to get to you. And, you know, a lot of it is chance. A lot of it was timing and, and good luck, but you know, that's all added up to a really big fan base. It was interesting interviewing some of the people who I assumed were huge fans of you and and them saying to me, well, actually, I haven't really kept in touch with the band. I don't really haven't heard them in 10 years. You know, I just think they're amazing people and I support what they do. And there are a few other people like that. I was surprised that of their answers that I thought would be a little more positive that weren't. Um, and. Nothing from me, man. I just, whatever happened. Well, I think that's an important part of the story is that you had a whole turnover in fan base, which a lot of bands don't get to experience. I mean, a lot of bands will come out of the gates, have their initial fans, and then they lose them. And then they have nowhere to go from there. Yeah. Whereas you, as you were losing sort of one set of fans, the sort of garage rock hipster types, you were gaining a whole new fan base overseas. And that wasn't a conscious thing, but when I what became conscious of it, I embraced it. You know, it's hard. I, like, I think being a garage rock man is one of the hardest things to do because, A, there's so many of them, and you need to come out of the gates with something that's really, really smoking and really grabs people's attention. But evolving out of that is always a tricky proposition because it's either you kind of be the Ramones and sort of hammer out the same record forever, or you try to, you know, or basically turn into the Rolling Stones <laughs> and sort of sort of temper your sound and become more traditionalist. So it's and lose your your and, fan and base then you lose the entirely. Fans. Yeah, which are which were the only fans you got. I mean, if, if you're gonna make that jump, you better have someone there to catch you in terms of like maybe airplay yeah. or uh, you know a nice write up. If you can go from being like the Mummies to the Black Keys. And get iTunes or Starbucks to sell your record, then you're you're set. And that's why I think the White Stripes are a remarkable band because I think they evolved, but kept it weird and and kept the mystique, and you know we're able to get played on FM radio. Yet we're still like live. You see them, and it was just like seeing them in 1999. Like, They're amazing. I also think garage rock music is a pose. It's more of a pose in 2012, especially with you know Garage Band, and you can make your you can make your band sound good. Now, if you're making your band sound deliberately bad, um, that's opposed to me. Yeah. You know, it's just a posture. Um, because they're, a, a true garage rock band was born in a garage or in a basement, and they sound the way they sound because, A, they didn't know how to play their musical instruments, and, B, they didn't have enough money to go into a proper studio, but they wanted to. Yeah. All those bands were influenced by the Stones. They wanted to be the Stones. And to, to really follow the re the real trajectory of a garage rock band is to be a garage rock band, play songs, get fans, get money together, go into a studio, record a better sounding record, and and take it bigger and bigger, just like the Stones did. That's how I see garage rock. And I think new bands have the benefit of, of hindsight and seeing, like, where did the Stones go wrong or where did they lose their way and avoiding that those sorts of pitfalls. Right. You know. Although I still I have a soft spot for emotional rescue. Yeah. I was gonna and, say and, and, and undercover I, of the night. I love emotional rescue and I love an undercover of the night. Is there is there one or two stories that stick out in trying to track down these characters for the book? 
anything that that you you took when you 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 keep from from the whole pro- project? Well, actually, I thought one Friday afternoon I got to speak to Jello Biafra and Mike Watt back to back, like five o'clock and five thirty, and you know that's not something I ever thought would happen. That's pretty cool. You know, and it was kind of cool. Like I got off with Jello and then I had to dial up Watt on Skype and I mentioned him. He's like, ah, you know, Jello. And then and Jello was like, you know, say hi to Watt for me. And, you know, I felt like I was playing, you know, the, the messenger between two punk rock icons. That's pretty cool. Um, but unfortunately I, 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 between those interviews, I found out that Captain Beefheart had died. And uh, I get on the Skype with Watt and I, I mentioned that to him and he just like, you know, kind of broke down like Watt's, Watt's a very emotional dude. Yeah, he is. He and is. he wears, you know, wears his heart on his, on his flannel. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of just put his head into his hand for, you know, a few minutes. And I'm like, it was a video Skype. It was a video Skype. And I was like, oh shit, I just like totally derailed this interview. <laughs> Great. Uh, but he kind of recovered very quickly. He's like, oh yeah, Danko Jones. <laughs> Let me tell you about Danko Jones. Da, 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 da. It was cool. Uh, the thing that Watts said, which I think was was really nice, was uh, you know a lot of the people in this book talk about how you know Danko Jones is a persona and he, he you know he's he's kind of playing the role of the rock star. And but Watts' take was you know Danko's very sincere. You know he's, he could he could see the sincerity in, in what you do, whereas a lot of people just see the sort of surface showmanship. Well, and, we've had, yeah, I mean, we, you know, Watt and I have had discussions and yeah. he's seen, he's seen me in the dressing room. We've played yeah. with him a few times and a lot, not, not even some of the people in the book who, you know, we've even toured with have seen that side of me with, with Mike. And I think Watt is able to, and I'm calling him Watt just in case people know that's how he yeah. addresses himself. I mean, Watt. You, you can mean, hear it on Sonic East Daydream Nation. Yeah. The song Providence, which is a answering machine recording he's like thurston what yeah he could, he could yeah exactly so i mean what uh, what and i have 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 had these kinds of conversations and uh i think he did the video that not the first video where he's the bartender in the third video where he is still the bartender but it's with he's serving elijah wood a drink um that was with ralph macchio so i'm in this bar with elijah wood ralph macchio um in New York, uh, in LA, in this seedy part of LA. And, uh, I'm just holed up in a corner with, with Watt and we're just talking. And these are, these are moments that I've had with him on, on every, every occasion I've met him. So I think that's the side he saw. And yeah. Jello's another guy where I've had conversations with, um, that, you know, I'm not yelling at Jello or, or Watt. Like I'm like, Hey, Jello, ah! you know, I'm just, I'm talking to them like I'm talking to you. So I, they see a different side, definitely. Yeah, and I think it's cool. Like Jello is obviously someone with a, a very high bullshit detector, and he's not afraid to call people out on, on their shit. And so the fact that he embraced a band like yours, which gets a lot of flack from other circles. Yeah. You know, the fact that he can see, you know, the sort of, you know, philosophy behind what you do and, and the sort of passion and the intensity, you know, I thought that's, that was a really nice endorsement. I, I have two, and I think my friendship with Jello over the years is, um, I value it, really. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, here's a guy I used to listen to in high school, and recently when he played Toronto, uh, he, we had lunch together, and he invited me. He goes, you want to sing Too Drunk to Fuck tonight? 
And I, I, I said, immediately I'll say yes. Yeah. I mean, you say yes, you don't say no. And uh, I went home the, that night, that day, tried to learn it. And I went, I got too arrogant. I was like, fuck, I know this. I've been listening to this since I was 14. I know this like the back of my hand. And then I started to listen to it. I'm like, oh shit. I mean, if I'm going to be up on stage in front of people and I have to recall all these verses that I could probably do it under yeah. my breath if I was listening to my iPod, I will freeze. And that's exactly what happened that night. That kind of reminds me of the time I did karaoke once, and uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do Mbappe Hansen, yeah. <laughs> and then the song starts, and I realize, I have no idea how the verses go to this song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's a different thing, especially when you're up on stage and... You know, like you said, you know, Jello's got a huge bullshit detector, and so do a lot of the people who follow Jello. And I'm yeah. standing there on stage going, I felt like just saying, Stop, stop, guys. Seriously, I've been listening to this song for more than half my <laughs> life. I, I swear to God, I know this like the back of my hand. I'm just really having a huge, I'm dealing with like a lot of stage fright right, right, right now. And after the, after the uh, show, I, I really, I, I didn't even want to go up to him. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and he said, Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, Reverend Horton Heat had me go up on stage once to sing. I think it was Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath or a Sabbath song. And he forgot the words to a Sabbath song, you know. And and he goes, ah, it's just, it happens, man. And I felt so relieved because I I thought I had, like, disrespected this this staple in his in his life. And, to, I mean, the title isn't really, doesn't make <laughs> you think that. But, I mean... But it too, everybody who knows the Dead Kennedys knows that Too Junk to Fuck is like probably the first punk rock song you ever hear when you're like 13, 14 years old going, yeah. ha, it's Too Drunk to Fuck. Um, I mean, I knew that song before I'd even tasted a sip of alcohol. Okay. In a way, you could say that was the more punk rock thing to do was to forget the lyrics <laughs> to a punk rock classic. Sure, I guess. I mean, I just <laughs> wanted to to be accepted, man. Sure. And then... Uh, Lemmy, of course, was a, was an interesting interview. Uh, that in was in the sense of like all the, you know, I tried to go through official channels. Management aren't, aren't exactly in a hurry to get back to us, so JC just said, you know what, I'll, I'll text Victor from the road crew. They were they were playing Toronto, and uh, we were hoping to get some FaceTime. And you know, about the day that Motorhead are playing, I'm told, yeah, just go down to soundcheck at five o'clock. You know, Victor will sort you out. And, you know, I've done enough interviews to know that no interview, especially ones scheduled around soundtrack, ever happen on time. So I'm waiting there, and, you know, an hour goes by, and, like, Victor just comes out. I was like, I'm so sorry, man. Like, you know, this will happen soon, I swear. You know, I'm really, can we get you anything great? I'm like, yeah, don't worry, dude. I'm like, I'm used to this. Like, waiting for an hour at soundtrack, that's, that's like 10 minutes to me. And then like every 10 minutes he would come up. He's like, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. And it's like, it's okay. It's cool. And then finally, you know, I, I, I get my audience with Lemmy. who's uh, yeah. Very quiet speaker. You know, I, that was, that one was really hard to transcribe because he, his, his, the tone of his voice sort of bleeds into like the ambient hiss that you get on a recording. So, but, uh, you know, he was he was very complimentary towards. I think when you finished the interview with Lemmy, uh, you texted John. I think, and then John, it was kind of like, got the got the interview, <laughs> got the interview, got the interview, like it was like that. The and, eagle has landed. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was like, well, was it good or bad? 
It was good. It was good. It was good. He got what he wanted. Yeah, so. Yeah, he's a man of few words. Yeah. You know, he's not, you know, the most forthcoming conversationalist, but each of those words carries a lot of weight and wisdom. <laughs> yes. You can feel yes. each of those words. Oh, yes. And I believe that night was the last time I've, I, I, I played, the, they were playing with National Pussy, and, uh. They invited uh, Motorhead invited me up to um, sing "Killed by Death." That was the last time I did it. I've done it more than a dozen times with them, but that was it. And then to do it in Toronto was so satisfying. Yeah. And then I love the fact that we got Philomena Lenat as well. Like that, you know, what other book has both, you know, Lemmy and you know an eighty-two-year-old rock matriarch? And she is, man. I mean. No, and she she told a great story of seeing you that night in Dublin, and um, so yeah, so I mean, this has been great. Um, this talk that you and I have had about this book and much needed because uh, it's great to have this like book release thing, but I think you and I have to sit down and do a podcast for God's sake. It's a well, long time for having us. Nick's not here though. I know. No comic relief. No, it, this is really early in the morning for Nick and even for me and for you. Yeah. I'm glad you made time to do yeah, this. I was gonna say, is this the earliest <laughs> Yanko Jones podcast has ever been uh, yes. recorded? Earliest ever. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to do this. And I think throughout the podcast, I think people can hear like the the rat race noise out, out, in, yes. the, out in the streets. Rush there. hour in Rush Toronto. Hour. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad you were able to do it and and come down here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Stuart. Oh, and thanks for writing the book and stuff. Huh? Yeah, I'll be back when I write the sequel. I'm glad there will be one. Train.